0: I know the reality for many of you is that on Sunday mornings, as you are getting ready to come to church, that for you and your marriage and your family, it often creates moments for conflict. Anybody experienced that along the way? Well I can tell you that Lindley and I have never in 27 years experienced conflict on a Sunday morning before church. And so let me tell you the secret to our success. Two things. Separate cars, and I leave before she ever gets up. I mean, now the truth is, if we were coming together in the same vehicle, we'd be no different than you and probably have it worse than you. We would be in conflict uh, periodically. And the reality is that when we're in relationship and we're together and we're doing things, it's just going to bring out times of conflict. And there are really three arenas where we experience conflict regularly. It's in the context of our home, marriage and parenting. It's in the context of our church family. If if you've been in church any time at all, there's conflict that happens in the church family. And then there's conflict in the workplace. Those are the three big areas where we regularly experience conflict. Now as God's people, I am grateful for stories like Joshua 22 that give for us a a great encouragement in the area of conflict and relationships. And so I'm excited to share this with you today. So let's jump right in Joshua chapter 22 and let's read through this story. Joshua chapter 22, starting in verse 1, Joshua summoned the Reubenites, Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh and told them, you have done everything Moses the Lord's servant commanded you and have obeyed me in everything I commanded you. You have not deserted your brothers even once this whole time, but have carried out the requirement of the command of the Lord your God. Now that he has given your brother's rest, just as he promised, return to your homes in your own land that Moses, the Lord's servant, gave you across the Jordan. Only carefully obey the command and instruction that Moses, the Lord's servant, gave you to love the Lord, your God, walk in all his ways, keep his commands, be loyal to him. And serve him with all your heart and all your soul. Joshua blessed them and sent them on their way, and they went to their homes. Moses had given territory to half the tribe of Manasseh in Boshan, but Joshua had given territory to the other half with their brothers on the west side of the Jordan. When Joshua sent them to their homes and blessed them, he said, Return to your homes. With great wealth, a huge number of cattle and silver, gold, bronze, iron, and a large quantity of clothing, share the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. If you remember when the whole journey began into the promised land, two and a half tribes were there and they had received their land on the side of the promised land, on the side of the Jordan before crossing into the promised land. They received their land in Gilead. But they had to make a deal with the Lord. The Lord said, I'm going to give you the land that you're requesting as your inheritance. But here's the thing. You've got to go ahead and cross the Jordan with everybody else. And you have got to fight for the promised land along with the nine and a half tribes. And the two and a half tribes were actually to commit those who are of fighting age. The men were to commit to be the front lines at the battles as they come into the promised land. And so the two and a half tribes, the men who were of age to fight in war, they left their homes, they left their spouses, they left their kids, they left everything they had on that side of the Jordan, and they went with God's people across the Jordan, and they went into the land to fight to get the land. And so after it's all said and done, Joshua's reached the point where he's able to say to the two and a half tribes, it's time to go home. You've been faithful. You've you've stood there in the front lines, you've given your lives. When they went into the battle at Ai, you remember 36 people died in that battle, the first of the book of Joshua. It's likely that of those 36 people, all or the majority of those were from the two and a half tribes because they were on the front lines of battle. They they had literally laid down their lives to help their brothers and sisters inherit a land they would never personally possess, and they'd done it. They'd been faithful. And now Joshua is saying it's time to go home. And I can just imagine hearing that, that reverberation of excitement and thanksgiving and just incredible celebration when they're told it's time to go home. They get to go home. They get to go see their families, get to see their spouses. They get to go into the land God gave them and begin their new lives. They had to be absolutely thrilled. They had obeyed the Lord and now they get to go home. So they're headed home, and they make their their way all the way across the Promised Land and get to the edge of the Jordan River, and they're about to cross over. And somewhere along the way between Shiloh and the Jordan River, they came up with an idea. And we get to read about that idea in verse 9. Look at verse 9. The Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh left the Israelites at Shiloh in the land of Canaan to return to their own land in Gilead, which they took possession of according to the Lord's command through Moses. When they came to the region of the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, Gadites, half the tribe of Manasseh built a large, impressive altar there by the Jordan. So something transpires between Shiloh and Jordan and the two and a half tribes, the guys that are headed home, they come up with an idea. Hey, let's build a very large altar on the side of the Jordan where Israel is before we cross over into our homeland. Now, we don't get a lot of details at this point in the story. We just hear the fact they built this large altar. After they built the large altar, they crossed the Jordan and they went home. And when they arrived home, they arrived home with all this wealth that they had received as a part of their efforts in the promised land. So when they got home, they were reconciled with their families. They brought back together amazing celebration. And they had this constant reminder of the generosity of God poured out on them as evidence that God keeps His promises. And they begin to live their lives there, and they are living out the command of Joshua. Joshua said to them, hey, when you go home, here's the one thing you've got to do. You've got to make sure you love God with everything you are. You've got to make sure that you are loyal to him with your heart and your soul. You serve him with everything you are. Here, the two and a half tribes are taking their next steps, going back home. They build this altar. They cross the river. They head home, and they begin to pursue their next steps as God's people in the land he gave them. And they love God with all their heart. I just think that's an amazing encouragement for us. You think about over the last several weeks, as many of us have made decisions about next steps, you filled out a commitment card. You said, Lord, I think this is my next step with my time, my talent, my treasure. This is what I want to do. And what this all really boils down to is simply the same thing that Joshua is saying here in Joshua 22. All of that is really about you making the decision to love God with everything you are. To serve him with your heart and soul. To be loyal to him above all things. Well, that's how the two and a half tribes go home. With that intent. Now meanwhile, back among the nine and a half tribes, word reaches them about the altar. Now let's read what happens, verse 11. Then the Israelites heard it said, Look, the Reubenites, Gadites, half the tribe of Manasseh have built an altar on the frontier land of the land of Canaan at the region of the Jordan on the Israelite side. When the Israelites heard this, The entire Israelite community assembled at Shiloh to go to war against them. Well, wait a minute. What's going on here? All we know is the two and a half tribes built an altar. That fact makes its way back to the nine and a half tribes. And the nine and a half tribes take that single fact and they create in their own thinking a story about that fact. There was an altar built, that's all we know. But the nine and a half tribes have created a story in their minds the two and a half tribes built the altar in rebellion to God. They are idolaters. They know what God said. that There's no other place they're supposed to worship other than the altar of the Lord God at the tabernacle. They've built this other altar. They're worshiping somewhere that they shouldn't be. They know what God said to us, that we've got to cut them off as a people. They have rebelled against God, and so we're going out in war to wipe them out. So they hear a fact, they build a story, and they react emotionally. You're going to hear all the emotion in their reaction when they go to confront the two and a half tribes. And it is powerful. They are afraid of God's judgment. They are angry over rebellion. And they are disappointed that they already turned away from the Lord. And they have manufactured this whole story just based on the simple fact they built an altar. But there's always... Two sides to every story, isn't there? Always. Look what we find here. Verse 13. The Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, to the Reubenites, Gadites, half the tribe of Manasseh, in the land of Gilead. They sent ten leaders with him, one family leader for each tribe of Israel. All of them were heads of their ancestral families among the clans of Israel. So we're not told what is ha- has happened here, but we've shifted from we're going out to war to wipe them out to we're sending a delegation. So I can imagine when everybody gathers to say we're going out to war to wipe them out that Joshua stood up and said, hey, wait a minute. Before we react on what we think may be going on, perhaps we should send a delegation to find out what's going on. I can just imagine Joshua saying, hey, is what we really want right now to go wipe out two and a half tribes? Is that what we really want? Hey, let's, let's think about what we could really want to be better than that. Let's just at least go find out. And so they assigned Phinehas to be the team captain to take the delegation all the way over into Gilead to find out what's going on. And really they go to pick a fight and squash a rebellion And the reason I say that is because Phinehas was a a great choice for team captain heading over there. Because Phinehas in Numbers chapter 25, he was the guy in the midst of idolatry. So Israel drifted into some idolatry when they are wandering in the wilderness. They got around some Moabites and they drifted into some of that idolatry that was common in that nation. And when that happened, God brought a plague on Israel because of their idolatry before him, participating in this worship among this pagan nation. And Phinehas stood up courageously against the idolatry in a way that, I promise you, no one would quickly forget. And he was the guy they chose to go over there and be the team captain of the delegation to stand in front of the two and a half tribes and say, you better not go down this road of rebellion. So they send Phinehas. Let's read what happens. Verse 15. They went to the Reubenites, Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. And they told him, this is what the entire community of the Lord says. So already Phinehas is starting with fighting words. Because what he essentially said is, to the two and a half tribes, he said, you're no longer on our team. Here's what the real team tells you. This is what all of Israel is going to communicate to you. By the way, you're not in right now because you're in trouble. So already is threatening words coming out of Phinehas. He says, he says this is what the Lord's entire community says. What is this treachery you have committed today against the, the God of Israel by turning away from the Lord, building an altar for yourselves so that you're in rebellion against the Lord today? Wasn't the iniquity of Peor, which brought a plague on the Lord's community enough for us? Remember, this is coming from Phinehas's mouth. We have not cleansed ourselves from it even to this day. And now, would you turn away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the entire community of Israel. But if the land you possess is defiled, then cross over to the land the Lord possesses, where the Lord's tabernacle stands. Take possession of it among us, but don't rebel against the Lord or against us by building for yourselves an altar other than the Lord, the altar of the Lord our God. Wasn't Achan son of Zerah unfaithful regarding what was set apart for destruction, bringing wrath on the entire community of Israel? He was not the only one who perished because of his iniquity. Do you hear all of that fear, that anger, that that desire to see the right thing happen, assuming that the wrong thing is going on? I mean, they have painted this picture. They're reacting out of the emotions of that, and they have come to pick a fight, squash a rebellion. And then we get the rest of the story. Look at what the two and a half tribes say. The Reubenites, Gadites, half the tribe of Manasseh answered the heads of Israelite clans, the Mighty One, God the Lord, the Mighty One, God the Lord, He knows, and may Israel also know. Do not spare us today if it was in rebellion or treachery against the Lord that we have built for ourselves an altar to turn away from Him. May the Lord Himself hold us accountable if we intended to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings on it, or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it. We actually did this from a specific concern that in the future, your descendants might say to our descendants, what relationship do you have with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a border between us, and you, descendants of Reuben and Gad, you have no share in the lord so your descendants may cause our descendants to stop fearing the lord therefore we said let us take action and build an altar for ourselves but not for burnt offering or sacrifice instead it is to be a witness between us and you and between the generations after us so that we may carry out the worship of the lord in his presence With our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to our descendants, You have no share in the Lord. We thought that if they said this to us or to our generations in the future, we would reply, Look at the replica of the Lord's altar that our fathers made. Not for burnt offering or sacrifice, but as a witness between us and you. <clears throat> we would never ever rebel against the lord or turn away from him today by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the lord our god which is in front of his tabernacle the two and a half tribes tell the rest of the story they tell them hey we we did this because we were concerned about our kids So somewhere along the way, in the trip from Shiloh to the Jordan River, there were conversations about, hey, what's going to happen with our kids and our kids' kids if someday, because we're separated by the Jordan, we're told you can't come over here anymore? They just decided to build this big old altar. And they left it on the west side of the Jordan. And they built it so big that it was just a replica of the real thing. They had the best of intentions and they were completely misunderstood. Fortunately, they sent a delegation and not a war party. And the rest of the story was told. Their outcome was amazing. Look at what happens. <clears throat> Verse 30. When the priest... Phinehas and the community leaders, the heads of Israel's clans who were with him, heard what the descendants of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh had to say. They were pleased. Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the descendants of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is among us, because you have not committed this treachery against him. As a result, you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's power. Then the priest Phinehas, son of Eleazar, and the leaders returned from the Reubenites and the Gadites in the land of Gilead to the Israelites in the land of Canaan and brought back report to them. The Israelites were pleased with the report and they blessed God. They spoke no more about going to war against them to ravage the land where the Reubenites and the Gadites lived. So the Reubenites and the Gadites named the altar. It is a witness between us that the Lord is God. Now the Reubenites and the Gadites, they had, and half the tribe of Manasseh, the two and a half tribes, they had made a plan to build this altar and it was going to be a witness between them and the generations so there would never be a time in the future where their kids would be told you can't come across the river and worship at the right altar so in their minds it was this was a witness so that that won't happen but god had something far more significant in mind not only would this altar be a witness that their kids could go across the river and worship this altar would be a witness of the day when war was averted and a testimony of reconciliation rung out across the land under the banner the lord is God and this created a witness that was much more significant in the generations to come that God wants us to be together he wants us to come together and be reconciled where conflict exists because we live under a banner that is loudest when we are together on the same team communicating the Lord is God what I love about this story is it does create an amazing template for conflict resolution in all of our relationships. And I just want to kind of walk through the template to give you some handles on how you take this story and apply it to your life in your relationships, your marriage, your church, and your workplace. So, every effort towards resolution and conflict needs good motivation. You can see the motivation in this story. It's seen most clearly in the name of the altar. This altar is a witness that the Lord is God. The glory of God was the chief end of their efforts to resolve. They wanted God to be glorified and that altar's name testified for the glory of God. The proper motivation for all conflict resolution and efforts given towards resolution is the glory of God. Do you care about God's glory? Maybe that question that Joshua perhaps asked in front of all Israel when they gathered as a war party, maybe that's the question we should be asking ourselves at the front end of every conflict we experience in relationship. What do we really want to happen? Do I really want God's glory to happen out of and through this conflict? And if I really want God's glory to happen, then what would be my very next action towards the person with whom I have conflict? God's glory is the greatest motivation for resolution. There's a study that was done about marriages and the conflict in marriages. And this particular study looked at a 10-year time frame. studied a group of marriages and the the way that they processed and, and handled conflict. And everybody fell into three categories. One category was we yell and we name call and, and we fight really loud. And one category was we, we kind of pull back into silent fuming. We're, we're not dealing with it. We're just, we're just putting it inside and we're covering it up. And then the third category is we're openly, openly and honestly dealing with the conflict and striving towards effective um, resolution. And so they looked at those three categories of couples over 10 years and they predicted 90% of the divorces based on how the couples dealt with conflict. And the couples that made it were the couples that kept working harder and harder at openly and honestly and effectively dealing with conflict. And the couples that didn't make it, they weren't dealing with it. I'm just going to tell you right now that if you decide... You want to deal with conflict, the greatest motivation for properly moving towards conflict resolution in your marriage, in your home, in your church, in your workplace is the glory of God. Number one motivation. The second motivation you see in the story is the motivation for the next generation. There was a deep concern for the next generation. The reason they built that altar, that altar is because they wanted to see and make sure that the next generation on both sides of the river kept worshiping the Lord together as one nation. They cared about the next generation. And they were motivated towards resolution for the sake of the next generation. They created a witness that would resonate with generations to come that they were God's people and He was their Lord. The next generation is an important motivation for our conflict resolution. I mean, think about how many couples today in their early 20s are choosing to cohabit instead of get married. And it's an alarming increase of cohabiting couples. And many times they're cohabiting because they have observed the shrapnel of brokenness in their parents' and grandparents' marriages. And they just don't want to get into marriage yet. And so they choose to cohabit. And I just want to tell you that our conflict resolution in marriage should have in mind the next generation. That we would like them to see testimonies, witnesses of what God has done because He is our Lord. So that it helps them say, I want God's way. God's way is better. And I prefer to follow Him than to try a different way that is clearly not His way. We need to be motivated by the next generation. Think about it in church. I'm telling you right now, there are numbers of people in our community right now where you live who are not going to come in these church doors and they're not going to come in these church doors because either they have been hurt or somebody in their family has been hurt by somebody in the church. And it just not ought to not be that God's people can't resolve conflict. It should not be that we allow pain to just continue among us without moving towards conflict resolution. And one of the reasons why we need to be motivated to do that is because the next generation is deciding what they're going to do with church. Do you know that right now more than ever, people who graduate from high school, 18 to 20 years old, they're leaving the church at massive numbers. And I'm telling you, I'm convinced that part of the reason our younger generation is leaving the church because they haven't seen compelling reasons to stay in the church. They get hurt, they see hurt, they see pain, they see conflict that's not resolved. And that should not be. The next motivation, the next generation should be motivation for all of us. God's glory, the next generation. Motivation conflict resolution in all your relationships the next thing that I think we got to be after is a better story like we, we need to be after a better story and they sent a delegation instead of sending a war party and that's testimony that they were actually after a better story if a better story existed and I think it's so important that we approach conflict with an attitude and a heart that is after a better story because more times than not a better story exists have you ever been in your house looking for something that you know you put somewhere and it's not there anymore and you also know who must have moved it and so you casually say hey have you seen that but what you're really saying is where did you put that You ever been in that situation only to discover you're the one that put it somewhere where you'd never forget where it was so that they couldn't put it somewhere that you couldn't find? You ever been there? I mean, I'm speaking from experience. And I asked Lily, how many times has that happened in our marriage? She says, there is no counting that. It's just (laughs) numerous And so if you've been in that situation where you've had something happen and you create a story in your mind and then you react to that story out of your emotion, man, that can create a whole situation that is detrimental to your conflict resolution. It it can just get you off sideways. And I just want to encourage you that when you think about resolving conflict that you pursue a better story because a better story can more often than not be found. But it it can't be found if you don't choose humility. If you're going to find a better story, you've got to choose humility. When they sent the delegation instead of a war party, that was a position of humility. Even though they came across with some fighting words, they were willing to listen. A key component of humility is the willingness to listen. They came to listen for a better story. And when they heard the better story, they kept listening for what was really being said. Do you you remember, did you pick up on the two and a half tribes? They said, well, really the problem is you. We're afraid that your descendants are going to keep our descendants from crossing the river. It's almost like they heard an accusation against them and they responded with the subtle accusation back. Have you ever been in a conflict where that happens? But, But the nine and a half tribes, they just kept listening And instead of attaching to some little deal there, they said, hey, there's a better story here to be found and we're going to find it together if we just listen and we choose the position of humility. When you choose humility, you're going to be someone who listens for the better story. When you choose humility, you're also going to be someone who believes that something better can really be pursued. You're going to say, hey, there's something that I want here that is much more significant than what this story may be informing my heart about. It's because I want something better. I'm going to take the first step of humility in listening to you. I'm not going to wait or demand that you take the first step towards me. No, I want God's glory in this. And so I'm going to take the position of humility by taking the first step towards you that's a listening step. I want to hear your story and reshape what I'm feeling right now around a much better story than I can ever understand if I didn't listen to you. You know what else is going to happen when you decide you want to be walking in humility? You're going to do just like the two and a half tribes did. You're going to say, Lord, you know, God, you are my God. You are the mighty God. You are the one I follow. You know my heart. And Lord, if I am guilty before you, I give myself over to you and I trust that you will take care of me. You'll bring the right judgment. You'll bring the right vindication. What I want to be is a person who says, far be it from me to ever rebel against God. I want to lay myself before you. I want you to have my heart. You know, when you step into conflict resolution, one of the greatest things you can do is to just get before the Lord in prayer and just say, Lord, I want to lay myself before you. You can see my heart better than anything, anybody else. And because you see my heart, I just want to surrender my life to you. Now, would you bring judgment where judgment is needed? Would you bring vindication where vindication is needed? And help me live surrendered before you for a better story. Humility. You come with humility, and you're listening, and you're surrendering, and you're working for something far better. You're going to find a better story more times than not. And when you find that better story, you can act on it together because you'll share the motivation of God's glory and a concern for the next generation. You'll share the hope of a, a better marriage or a, a better workplace or a better church, and you'll believe in a better future because of what God does in resolving conflict. You'll be able to put action to that better story. The reason you'll be able to motivate your life towards action is because emotions surrounding a story always drive you to an outcome. And here's what happens if we don't tell a different story. If we allow things like fear and anger, disappointment and frustrations to inform our hearts then we will craft a story that oftentimes becomes so dangerous because we will act on the basis of selfishness. We'll act on the basis of fear and anger, and we will do things we will forever regret in conflict. But if instead we will say, I want to find a better story that changes the emotions of this situation so that I can act out of those emotions under the power of God's Spirit? Here's what happens. When they got together and they listened, what happened? Everybody's like, hey, this is great news. We're really happy about this. And they began to worship the Lord. Can you imagine when the nine and a half tribes left, how the 2 and a half tribes celebrated again? Hey, not only did God create a witness on the Jordan for our generations but we are together we are united and everybody's going to see the Lord as God and the nine and a half tribes they go home and they celebrate because everybody hears what God did there was amazing emotional motivation when the new story the right story the real story informed the situation the emotions can be dangerous but emotions can be beneficial it's just our choice of whether or not we're going to let the Lord have our heart And inform our hearts with the better story. When they all did that, they built that altar and they created this witness. And I just want to encourage you that as you walk through conflict in your marriage, conflict in your workplace, and conflict in the church, and you experience God bringing about resolution, would would you just name some of those conflicts, put a name on it, and then set it before your family, set it before your church small group, set it before your workplace, and say, look what the Lord did. The Lord is God. And look what he did. Oftentimes I get parents asking me about how do, how do we hide our kids from the fights that we have and the conflicts that I have. And, and I just encourage parents, hey, don't do conflict out in the middle of, of the living room where the kids can watch the, the, the ugliness of some of the conflict that happens. Do it in a place where they can't see the ugliness, but make sure that they do see and hear at age-appropriate times the resolution that God brought you through so your kids know more about what it's like to have conflict and resolution as God's people. Name some of that conflict and give God the glory for it. There's a significant reason why this matters so much. Jesus says it like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. You know why conflict resolution matters so much as the people of God? Because there's nothing more important than loving God with all that we are. And loving each other. We're to love God. We're to love people. But it's far more important than just that. Because Jesus Christ says in John chapter 13 verse 35, The world will know that you follow me. Because you love each other. Do you know what we do when we resolve conflict in our marriages as followers of Christ? Do you know what we do when we resolve conflict in the church family as followers of Jesus Christ? We are creating a witness that Jesus Christ is exactly who he says he is. The world knows we follow Jesus because we love each other. This is about loving God, loving people, but this is even more so about helping others do the same. This is a big deal. This last week, Lindley and I got word, in fact, it was yesterday, about a dear couple friend of ours from years ago And their story is not a story of misunderstanding. Like Joshua 22 is a story of misunderstanding. But this dear couple friend of ours, their story is not a story of misunderstanding. The husband was arrested this last week for unspeakable crimes. And there's not a better story. What do you do then? Here's the greatest gift that we've been given as God's people. We've been given the gift of the best story of all. Because when we were at our worst, sinners before God, rebellious in our own hearts, God sent Jesus Christ to die for our sin. And if we place our trust in him, he tells us he forgives us of all of our sins, washes our sins away, makes us as clean as white snow, removes our sin from us as far as east is from the west. He forgives us and loves us and makes us his own. We are recipients of the greatest story of all. and What that means is, whether my unfolding story is a story of misunderstandings or my unfolding story is a story of terrible facts, God's greater story can inform my heart so that I can respond with love, trust, and forgiveness. It's not easy. But God's made provision for us to never lose hope in the middle of all the stories of life because it's sometimes only through the really hard stories that the people around us see the better stories. Hang on to Jesus. Trust Him, no matter what your story is, so that the better story is seen by a world that has no other hope.